This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth Ability. So, financial education is something we talk about all the time in uh, in our podcast, but income inequality is something that the rest of the world is terribly concerned about. It's something that the, um, the, Demo- the, the Democrats and the Republicans are fighting over. It's something that we see uprisings throughout the world. And so is this an issue just of those who have not as much money? Or is this an issue that everybody needs to deal with? Do we need to be able to solve income inequality to have peace and prosperity throughout the world? And today we have a very special guest to talk about how financial literacy impacts um, income and wealth inequality. And I'm very, um, very excited to welcome onto the show, Dr. Anna Lusardi from George Washington University. Anna, thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. And would you just give us um, basically a 30-second resume of uh, what do you do and why do you do it? So I am a university professor at GW. I've been at GW for about 10 years, and I spent the rest of my academic career at Dartmouth College. For the past 15 years or so, I I have dedicated my work, studies, and other programs to financial literacy and financial education. And I'm going to say, you know, it does matter uh, financial literacy is an important skill that we all need to de- need to have today to succeed and to be able to navigate the economic environment in front of us. And it will eventually also help us to make us more financially secure. So here's the, the question. I'm going to just start off with the question. So you've done some research on uh, you've done a lot of research on financial literacy. Uh, let, let's start with that. Where, where do you think we are from a financial literacy standpoint in the U.S. and the world? Well, we know this because there are a lot of international surveys that actually compare the U.S. with other countries. And they do it both looking at the young and looking at the adult. And the answer, I have to say, is the same uh, in these uh, two age groups, which is that the U.S. is overall in the middle of the pack when it looks at, um, at the level of financial knowledge, which is not a good place where to be uh, because the U.S. is the country with the most developed financial markets. You know, it's the countries uh, which, um, you know, where probably, you know, one of the few countries where young people today uh, get out of college with more than $30,000 in student loans. And so where young people have to make important and consequential financial decisions very early on. And that's why it's also important to compare the financial literacy of 15 years old, for example, as the PISA OECD data does. So overall, I have to say the level of financial literacy in the U.S., both looking, I think, at the country itself and looking as an international comparison, is too low than what it should be. I, I appreciate that. That's my experience as well, um, is that the financial literacy actually is very low, especially when you consider that, you know, financial literacy is not just about income and how to use money, but it's also about how to build wealth. 
So um, one of the issue we want to talk, I really want to focus on is what do you think is the answer or the solution to income inequality? I don't think there is a solution. You know, the problem is probably too big to think that, you know, we, uh, we can use only one instrument. Um, to, you know, solve income inequalities is certainly a, a very big problem. And by the way, if you look around the world as well, right, it's not that countries, you know, do not have that problem as well. And, you know, I'm sure that everybody has tried different things. So, you know, I think we can speak of contributors um, to income and wealth inequality. And I actually do think that if you look at the wealth inequality, it's far greater than the income inequality, right? And this is, I think, what we have witnessed. So how would you define um, income inequality? I think most people have heard what income inequality is. I mean, they get an idea, you know, one person makes $200,000 a year, one person makes $50,000 a year, somebody else makes a billion dollars a year. That's in, you know, we, we talk about that all the time. How do you describe the difference with wealth inequality? I think actually using the, the number you have said now, you know, when you look at just the span, the difference in, in income, right? I don't think you're going to go to the billions, right? There are very few people whose income is a billion, right? But that's very different when you, when you go to wealth. So if you just look how huge is, you know, the, uh, the value that the wealth can take, right? So just to give you an example, probably Jeff Bezos, doesn't make billions of dollars in income, right? But he has billions of dollars in wealth. And so when you look at the wealth itself, the numbers are going to be a lot wider. And, you know, you can look at uh, measure of inequality, like, you know, how indeed large the differences are, or you can look at how much people at the very top, right, uh, account for the total income or the total wealth in a country, and when you look at the second one, how much, you know, top wealthy people account for the wealth holdings, you really see, you know, very large inequality. Got it. And, and since wealth is what produces income when you're not working, okay, <laughs> right? So that's, I mean, we, you know, we were talking earlier about, um, before we started recording, about the current pandemic. And that, you know, when you have a pandemic and all of a sudden people are out of work, they're like out of money. Well, so income doesn't help them in that situation. They could be making $500,000 a year. I mean, I, for example, I have a client who's a physician. They, he's a surgeon. They closed down the surgery center. Okay. Well, you close down the surgery center. His, his, his partners were scared to death because even making what they did as surgeons, they were living hand to mouth. And so when they shut down, they didn't have a lot of cushion there. Whereas, of course, my client, fortunately, has a lot of money, a lot of wealth that produces income. So he doesn't really have to work. He works because he likes being a surgeon. Um, but that's, that, that's a big difference right there. And that's why, um, you know, I am so interested in financial literacy, Right. Um, the fact that, you know, today is much more important than in the past to manage our resources. Right. And so, for example, to use our income to save and to create wealth and to grow our wealth. Um, and I think, you know, the crisis, both crises actually have really unveiled the difficulties that people face. 
right? The previous crisis, for example, has really shown that even in very important financial decision, like buying a house, right, that we thought was a common decision, well, people can make important mistakes. And we have seen, you know, how mistakes were done and, and they are very important and consequential. You know, what we do see now in the, in the current crisis is how few people had a buffer stock of savings. And, you know, like uh, very vivid in our mind is the line at the food banks, but not, you know, not far away from when the government, sh from when the economy shut down, right? Two weeks after the economy right. shut down, all of the cars were lining up. And it happened, by the way, last year as well, when the government shut down in January 2019. So again, people do not have, not just the saving for the long term, uh, you know, as you were saying, to, you know, allow us to have a good retirement, but they often do not, they don't have saving for the short term. So how, mu how much savings do you think the average person has? Well, you know, there, again, because of this uh, wide inequality, you know, we do know, uh, and actually I can tell you in uh, the recent work that we have done, that at least as of January, when the economy was really doing still well, 27%, so about 30% 30, uh, 30, uh, of the uh, population would not have been able to come up with $2,000 if an unexpected expense would happen. So, you know, and this we are talking about the, just the precautionary savings, right? Uh, there are lots of statistics that says, you know, a lot of people live hand to mouth. You know, I don't know that the percentages are as big as, what some of the people argue, but when we ask, for example, about, you know, do you have a small buffer? Um, you know, we don't see this. When we ask people, you know, do you plan for retirement? Have you made provision for retirement? Yet again, we see that, you know, from uh, one third to 40% of people normally say, you know, I'm, I'm not making, I'm not making enough provision for retirement. Oh, very interesting. So how do you think that, this income inequality um, or wealth inequality, do you think that it contributes to the uprisings we're seeing, whether it be in the Middle East or whether it be down Main Street or in Portland or wherever it is, where do you think um, this income inequality, how do you think that impacts all of this energy that we're feeling um, around the world of all of these uprisings and protests? So it's not, I have to say, a, a topic I study necessarily, so this is not coming from, you know, uh, an academic research. But I do think that, um, you know, very wide inequality is probably not good for society. So certainly it's not good for the individual, you know, uh, in particularly if we see that at the bottom end of that wealth or income inequality lies a lot of difficulties right, like um, lies a lot of anxiety. So one of the things uh, I can say is that, you know, one of the survey we did back in 2018, and this is a survey when the economy was doing well, when we asked people about financial anxiety, how much they would worry about, you know, thinking about their finances and so on, so many people had anxiety and so many people were worried. So, you know, this is, this is, I think, important just to touch the pulse, you know, of what people uh, can be doing. And so, you know, if you're not able to make end meet, um, and, you know, if you have a lot of difficulties, 
in succeeding, you know, in, in, in what, you know, you, you want to do, you know, people want to do well, they want to, you know, be able to put food on the table, you know, help their families, make sure that their children get a good education and so on, you know, this is the thing has become so much harder. Um, and so I can imagine that there is a lot of discontent you know, in, in the US and in other countries as well. And of course, the discontent can become bigger if you see other people, in a sense, you know, accumulating enormous amount of wealth while you are not able to come to the end of the month. You know, is this the main reason uh, to do so? I, I really don't think it's very healthy potentially for a country to have a large amount of inequality and in particular to have um, a large, you know, a high proportion of people not able to make it to the end of the month. I'll get back to this in a second. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. You know, I'm, I'm reading um, Ayn Rand's uh, book, We the Living, which um, if you're familiar with that book, was written as their first novel. And it was written um, about the Russian Revolution and post-Russian Revolution back in the 19, basically mostly takes place in the early 1920s. And, and basically the Russian Revolution was about income in wealth inequality. I mean, fundamentally, that revolution, I mean, Soviet means worker, and it's the, you know, the workers' revolution against having this big wealth inequality. And uh, it's a fascinating description. Of course, she lived through it, right? She was there um, while this was going on. She was a young girl when this was going on. And, and, and to look at that type of upheaval and what happened to those who had wealth Okay, because of course they had all their wealth taken away. We saw the same thing in Zimbabwe, right? Zimbabwe, what happened was the, the they they drove out the um, uh, you know the white farmers had all of the assets, they had all of the wealth, like you say, and so they uh, they said, well, we're going to take over all of that. Well, the result in both those cases was not more wealth for the country. And, and, and so one of the things that it seems to me is that when you drive intellectual capital away, then you lose a lot by driving intellectual capital away. But if you, if you have all the intellectual capital in a few hands, that's very wealthy, then, you know, what are the, you know, what's the 99% going to do? And, and it seems like they're going to have some kind of an uprising. There's going to be something that they're going to be um, challenged with. But do you see that that is something that could happen here um, if we don't address the inequality? It's a very hard, uh, you know, comment or prediction to make. You know, I also think it's very important that one uh, makes a distinction between inheriting wealth, right, or how the wealth is formed. 
you know, so there are, of course, large differences today with the wealth that uh, people have, you know. Um, how much of the wealth, for example, is inherited? Um, you know, is it that I am wealthy just because, you know, my parents are wealthy and I just, you know, therefore I don't do anything? Or is it because I'm wealthy because I, I am in the important part of the economy that produces a lot of wealth, like technology, right? And so depending on, you know, this type of think of decision, also the question is, you know, how do we regulate the wealth and also is it important, for example, that we give access, uh, more access to people to the type of skills that can generate the wealth? You know, I, in a sense, uh, it's interesting to see that, you know, finally some of this wealth is accumulated by very young people, mm -hmm. right? Very young people that have these incredible skills, you know, like technology, to be able to give us this incredible product that we all want um, and you know and that uh, is an important way to generate wealth um, having said so you know when the amount of wealth becomes so big much more than you know in a sense people can use it put at work in their own firms i think we do have an obvious policy questions about you know, as a, you know, we are, we are, after all, a society, you know, um, that has specific needs. So how can we make sure that we share in um, some of those, um, uh, some of that accumulation of wealth? Uh, and so, you know, these are important questions. I do not, I do not have an answer and I do not have a prediction. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's something that we are all thinking about. Okay, so, so let me put this to you. Which would be, in your mind, more long-term successful in uh, dealing with the wealth inequality, um, reallocating income from the, the wealthy to, to, the, to the poor or the, the, less, the less wealthy, say, so to speak, as Joe Biden would do or Bernie Sanders would do, okay? That's very much their plan is to reallocate income. Is it that? Is it, or is it financial literacy, education as a whole, or is it some combination? What do you think? Well, I certainly would go for a combination in the sense that, you know, uh, as I said, there is not a unique solution or, you know, we do, and also we don't need to have just one instrument um, to do, uh, you know, to do policy. And I also want to go a little bit beyond financial literacy, uh, but I do think actually that financial literacy is a very important skill uh, that we need today. And I actually think that it's a very important for the 21st century that we invest in skills and in access to skills, and that we invest in human capital and in talents. So if you, you know, if you give me the, you know, if I had to make a, those decisions, what I would really do and what I would love to do is invest a lot in not just education, like in terms of college or high school, but education at the very beginning. Um, I would invest a lot in making sure that we develop well the talents that people have, irrespective of their income situation. And I would make sure that we invest and continue to invest a lot in human capital, because that's, I think, what really creates income uh, at the end. But this is so, you know, 
unequally distributed. You know, if you look at the mm -hmm. schools, you know, they, they are becoming more and more segregated. Um, but, you know, I do see, I do see so much talents everywhere. You know, when I, uh, at GW, I see these first generation students, you know, they are incredibly talented. They are, you know, so good and, you know, willing to work and, you know, acquiring these uh, important skills that are now necessary. Um, so I think, you know, thinking hard of how to give access to everybody to a really good education and making sure we foster the talents as well is incredibly important. In my center as well, I see that the people that we are able to mentor or that the people that we are able to follow more or perhaps because we have more experience or we have more time, they are actually able to do better. They succeed more and they engage and they are going to do even better in their own career. So, you know, I think some of this attention to talents and, and to, you know, be able uh, to train and, and to offer a good education, I think is very important. And secondly, you know, let's not uh, forget that, you know, we are all facing shocks. Uh, and, you know, that there are a lot of barriers to, you know, what we can do. And some of them are not only due to how good we are or how persistent we are, right? If I had bad health and I had a sequence of bad health shocks, I wouldn't probably be a university professor today. Um, and, you know, and if I had faced, you know, other adversity, I would not have been able to do so. So I think, you know, also as a society, there is a way in which we can share shocks in which we can share bad luck. And I think we should do so. What's the purpose of the government otherwise? You know, I think it's, uh, and that's why, you know, of course we need also a good redistributive uh, policy because not all of this is just due to, you know, our willingness to work hard is also due to, you know, the, the ecosystem. And let's also make sure that this ecosystem is as fair as possible. There are a lot of unfairness, you know, not just in the tax uh, uh, policy, but you know, around us. And so taking away some of that unfairness, I think can be very important. No, I, I, I agree. I, you know, I've, um, like you, I travel around the world uh, quite a bit, um, speaking in many different countries. And when I look at a third world country versus a first world country, what I really primarily see is the education level. Of, um, of, of the middle class, right? And, and I see a bigger middle, you know, the, the first world countries have a much bigger middle class and that middle class seems to come from education. You know, it's the old um, story of, do I give you a fish or do I teach you how to fish? And when you talk about income versus wealth, income is giving the fish and wealth is learning how to fish. And so it's, you know, you're in the accounting department. So, you know, we can talk about accounting even though I know you're an economist. So from an accounting perspective, most people I think are very focused on income statements. Okay, so that's one of the financial statements. But when it comes to wealth, this is the balance sheet. This is where your assets and your liabilities are. And what most people have is frankly, um, the, the poor tend to have nothing on their balance sheet. The middle class tend to have liabilities at least equal to their assets. Okay, so it's not they don't have assets on their balance sheet, it's that they have enough liabilities like boats and cars and homes and um, like you say, student, student debt, um, student loan debt, those are liabilities, those are things they owe that offset the assets that they have and the assets that they have aren't typically income producing assets. So the liabilities are just constantly draining 
their income. So, so it seems to me like, you know, it's giving somebody money. I mean, we look at lottery winners, right? Giving somebody money isn't going to create long-term wealth for them or people even earning a big income doesn't create long-term wealth for them. What really creates the wealth is like you say, it's the skill and the understanding and the knowledge to take that money that you earn and use it and actually build the assets on your, on your balance sheet. So the question is, how do we, how do we actually get the financial literacy um, more equal? Because you're right. I mean, it's, I, I totally agree. It's access to this, access to the financial literacy and also to all the skill, you know, all skills, right? Not just financial, but other skills. Like you say, intellectual capital, give them access. How do you think we do that? How do we, how do we accomplish that? I think at least in two ways, and this we have seen it both here and in other countries. So first of all, you have probably already mentioned one, which is that we need to have financial literacy in the schools. If we don't have it, then the access will still be that the wealthy or the, you know, the college educated families, in a sense, will you know, transmit it to their children, but it will be you know, much, much more unequally distributed. So having it in the schools allow it, allows this universal access, you know, also to the people who, don't, who do not uh, come from wealth, um, and so we are able to give these skills. And, you know, we see that uh, very strong link between financial literacy and wealth inequality, uh, and sorry, and, and uh, financial literacy knowledge. So I think it's very important to start at the school and to start as early as possible because our financial education habits actually start very early. So if you look at people, you know, even the, the saving behavior of children, you know, happen very early. But of course, you know, how about the adult population? I also think it's very important to do financial education or we call it financial wellness at work. You know, adults mm -hmm. are at work and at work today, we are making many financial decisions. So, for example, how much to save or contribute to a 401k, you know, to take advantage if we have it to the employer matches, or even how to, to manage for those who have it, you know, uh, their um, health insurance. You know, now the health insurance contract has a lot of financial components in it, you know, high deductible, for example, and things like this. So we have to be very uh, skilled and much more financially savvy than in the past. So I think, you know, this could be, you know, two important and scalable and initi an initiative that could really reach a large part of the population. And I think it would actually be important to, you know, make sure that people have at least that basic skill. So, so you're familiar with my friend Robert Kiyosaki, um, wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He also, and his, his mission in life is financial literacy. And, um, and he also developed a game um, called Cash Flow, which we, for example, play in our office. So I love the idea of having, um, doing financial education in the workplace. Because I think you're right. I think that the, you know, the schools, for whatever reason, have declined in large part financial education, financial literacy. And I'm, I'm not 
I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how you do, you know, actually get them to do that. You're in that world. So, so I, I'm hoping that you can have some influence there. Um, but in the workplace, um, this is something where every, you know, all of our listeners are entrepreneurs or they want to be entrepreneurs. And I think this is a really good point that this is something we can actually do in the workplace, whether it's playing, you know, Robert's cash flow game, uh, frankly, playing Monopoly. Uh, Monopoly is a terrific financial education game. Uh, absolutely one of the best, probably the, uh, you know, most played financial education game ever in the history of the world. And uh, interestingly enough, it was invented during the Great Depression. So uh, I found that fascinating. And it even has a rule in it that's much like the federal, the, the Fed. Um, if you don't have enough, uh, if you run out of cash, you can just print more, which is definitely what we've decided to do in this country is that if you run out of cash, you just print more. So it's that by itself. I mean, all of that. Uh, doing that in the office, I, I think that's a great, I, I think it's a great thing. I mean, even for, 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 for the pandemic days, even has an online version and there are online financial games that I think when people play games, they tend to learn a little differently than if they're just being told something. Um, so what, what do you think about the idea of like even playing games in a workplace like that? It's a little bit tricky because um, I think, you, you know, uh, uh, it's not obvious sometimes that, you know, the games are able to teach or that people take, uh, you know, a game as seriously as they should, you know, because I think people think of finance as, a, uh, in a sense, a, an important and serious topic, you know, something that even brings them anxiety. Um, I think games are a good way uh, potentially to take away the, maybe the hesitation that people have about finance, mm -hmm. because that's also mm -hmm. a topic in which they are scared or they think right. they learn it and so on. So to me, the advantage of games is actually about the simulation part. Right. So that, uh, many decisions, you know, we don't get to, to, to do it many times. So, you know, in, in a lot of the financial decision, sometimes the learning by doing doesn't happen. I don't retire many times, you know, I don't right. buy you know, so many houses, right? Or I don't go to go to college, you know, back. Um, so, you know, and, and so that, uh, that learning can be very limited. You know, a game and a simulation can actually teach us how things work, right? And therefore, right. how it can be done. You know, for the workplace, we have actually done several programs on our website at GFLAC, at the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center. We have, you know, several programs that can be used for the workplace. And the importance there as well, I think, is to really do something that is of, is of relevance and of importance to people. And one of the things I want to say, or at least there are actually three, that you know, you have already mentioned that you know people might have a lot of assets, but also many of these assets are leveraged. And so, you know, in our experience, one of the things that worry people a lot, even more than saving for retirement, often is managing debt. And so, you know, I think the, the workplace financial education has to address, you know, the problem that people have. And, you know, by addressing them holistically, what are some of the problems, I think we can also then achieve, for example, some of the, the, some of the other decision, which is making people being on a financial safe footing and making people as well safe for retirement. And so again, I only address one things rather than all of them. And so we want to make sure as well that we address the concerns that people have. And finally, I also want to say, well, but you know, an employer can say, why should I have, you know, why should I use the time 
perhaps even the working time, you know, of, of my workers, you know, play games or why should I even help them save for retirement? I'm not a bank, you know, or I'm not, uh, you know, their own financial advisor. Why do we have to, to take up that job? And I would highly recommend that they indeed take up the job for two reasons. Actually, people which have financial worries are not as productive at work. And I can tell you this because we did a survey recently of how many hours people you know, spend during the week dedicated to financial decision and how many of them at work as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So people do spend, in a sense, productive hours potentially you know, making decisions or being worried about decisions, a financial decisions. So they are not as productive. And it's also a way today to take care of your workers, to make sure that they grow, they do well. And so it's a win-win, you know. It's not that employers are doing charities here or are doing a good thing just to do it. It's actually an important thing to make workers succeed, do well, and do well for the firm as well. Uh, I could never have said that as well as you just did. So thank you, Dr. Lusardi. Um, if anybody wants more information about your, uh, uh, glo- your Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center, you call it GFLEC, I think. Yes. Um, if, if somebody wants more information about you or what you're doing financial literacy-wise, where would they go? Yes, they can go on that website. It's www.gflac.org. And in there, we have posted all of our research, but also all of our programs. You know, we do program for the workplace, so they would find, you know, information about that that program. Uh, I have posted uh, all of my lecture notes for personal finance. I teach personal finance in the accountancy department. And because we are also passionate about having financial literacy in the school, and we think that everybody could contribute to having financial literacy in the school, we tell just ask your school district to have it. We also have a website called Fastlane, also on the GFLAC website, where we provide all of the information that is needed if you want to start a financial literacy program in your school district. We call it fast lane because we want to put students on the fast lane to financial security. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Lusari. It's absolutely been a pleasure and a privilege um, speaking with you today. Thank you for taking time for us. Just remember, everybody, that uh, you know when when you learn. When you get financial literacy, when you really understand financial education, the difference between a balance sheet and income statement, you know, the difference between wealth and income, and when you teach it and take time to teach it to other people, um, in the end result, you're always, frankly, you're going to make way more money, and in the end, you're going to pay way less taxes. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.